Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guests today are Laura Burland and Evan Harrell, Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer, respectively, of the Centre for Compassionate Leadership in New York. You can find them on Twitter at Being Compassion. Laura and Evan, welcome. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Chris. Tell me how you came to set up the Centre for Compassionate Leadership. Bringing it together was really the culmination of my life's work. For 40 years, I was in the commercial and nonprofit world of technology and media. And the first 20 years or so were very, I was very unaware of the things that really mattered. I was pursuing shiny external success and I was doing very nicely at it. And then I hit a personal trauma point right before. 2000 rolled around. And that set me off on a path to come off of the overwhelm and the extreme behaviors and to really settle into an inner journey. Uh, Started on a contemplative path of meditation and yoga and learning how to source my being from the inside out. So uh, that 20 years of passion around the contemplative practices was very separate from my, you know, my day-to-day business life. And a few years ago, and frankly, after our 2016 elections, I decided that it was really time to bring these aspects of life together because I noticed that my business life, my life in organizations had really shifted as I grew into my contemplative practices to the benefit of the people I led, to the benefit of my family and friends and relationships. And I really wondered, isn't there a way to put these practices into purposeful action in organizations, because there are many people on a personal journey, but we don't see as many people really instilling these values into organizations. So that's how we got started about a year and a half ago. And uh, we started uh, testing this work with PhD and postdoc students at Cornell University in New York and have since grown to um, create a a number of different ways of sharing and growing uh, compassionate leadership around the globe. What's the mission of your organization? We, uh, We are seeking to advance compassionate methods of leadership. And we do it by integrating evidence-based practices. Everything that we do, we, we seek to base on science with contemplative wisdom, with the wisdom that goes back uh, millennia. We have four pillars, the first of which is trying to build a community around the many people out there we have, have found are very interested in compassion and specifically in compassionate leadership. Within that community, almost a, a natural extension of that is thought leadership, not just our thoughts, but trying to bring the thoughts of other uh, great thinkers around compassionate leadership, of which uh, you are, of course, one, Chris. In addition, we are engaged in in research, 
seeking to try to advance the cause and advance the understanding of compassionate leadership. And based on all of that, as, as Laura said, we've, we're also engaged in education and training to try to, uh, to bring these principles directly to leaders. So our goal is to really bring compassion much more deeply and much more broadly in the world with leaders as the specific channel that that happens. And is uh, education and training the main route whereby you, you translate your mission into practical action then, Evan and Laura? Um, it, it is one of the routes, not our main. I'd say our, our main focus at this part of the journey is really to embrace the community and to grow the community and to provide a global hub for you know what are often sort of isolated pockets of compassionate leadership, either an individual within an organization or an individual who feels that passion inside to be of service in this way and doesn't really know how or how they can serve in an organizational setting. So working on the community and the thought leadership part is particular focus now. The workshops and the training sort of flow from that, but we're really, really interested and we're finding it around the world, which is so exciting. You know, we're talking to people in Singapore and many people in the UK and throughout Europe and of course throughout the States. So we are so in awe of how this is sort of bubbling up all over and how people are yearning to bring these principles forward in this time. Now, I won't lie, when I've spoken to some of your countrymen in the past, they often have quite a transactional model of compassion. It's something they keep in a box on their desk for when someone has a serious illness or accident. Your own understanding of compassionate work is quite different from that, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. It's very different. You can't keep your piano playing skills in a box and just bring them out anytime you want to play the piano, uh, nor can you wake up and say, today I want to go run a half marathon. Uh, compassion is the same way. It's, it's a practice. It's a process. It's not a transaction. So it's going to apply in urgent situations, but your success in urgent situations is going to be dependent upon your ability to um, execute on, on the skills that are required. I mean, listening, for example, is a foundational skill of compassionate leaders. And that's not something you just you pick up on from time to time. Listening is something that really must be practiced. If, compa if compassion is awareness of the other, connection to them, a feeling of empathy and understanding of what the other person is feeling, and then finally a, a desire to take action, each one of those are things that you have to be working on at all times. And uh, research, for example, on the Brisbane floods of 2011 showed that the companies who were the most compassionate ones were those who had engaged in training in advance, who had, who had embedded this into their organizations. You can't just have it in a, in a manual on the shelf and then pull out the manual that says, you know, open in case of Emergency. suffering. Can you give me some examples of compassionate leadership practices, uh, listening aside, that you would commend then? Sure. You know, we like to look at compassion leadership and compassion itself as an inside out process. 
And we have a model that works from the inner self with self-compassion to compassion for others to compassion for the greater whole. And when you start on the inside, it really helps to support people in finding that inner space, that sense of awareness that they need. Simple, simple things like breath attention and posture and just basic mindfulness skills are really foundational so that people can settle themselves and get into a place of really understanding where their attention and their awareness is, because where attention is, energy follows, right? So beyond that, when we talk about some of the the other rings, like how we relate to others, we love a practice that is based on traditional wisdom called just like me, so that we ask people to either bring somebody to mind or look at various pictures, people that are really different and apart from them and may be very challenged and may be suffering, and then work through a series of phrases and an awareness that helps people understand there is a connection, that we all have this common humanity and we are all connected. And just like me, this person is suffering or just like me, this person wants to be happy. So that's a very potent practice that helps with unconscious bias, for instance, and recognizing common humanity. And then I would just lastly on the outer ring, talk about a practice of interconnectedness so that for people who aren't necessarily thinking that everyone and everything is connected, although these past few months with our global crisis has really brought that to the forefront and raised that awareness overall. That's another simple practice of just thinking, for instance, and this can be done in many ways, but one day is just one way is just thinking about what I'm having for breakfast or lunch and honoring and showing gratitude and recognizing all the people and processes that were involved in just touching a simple bowl of, of oatmeal or a cup of coffee or you know the vegetables on my lunch table. So there are so many wonderful wisdom practices to draw from and really creating a community of practice within an organization. Because again, many people have individual personal practices, but how do we shift organizations into communities of practice? That's a big question and a big challenge. That's a great insight, I think. And the more I work in this field, the more I realize that it does start from inside and you can have the very best of intent, but unless you've got that self-awareness and self-regulation, then actually it's very challenging to to implement compassionate leadership. The phrase compassionate leadership does jar in the psyche of some people, particularly if they've been accustomed to heroic leadership. What would you say to that? Well, let me first say that I think compassionate leaders absolutely are heroes. And I I think that uh, some of the the hurdle comes from our our perception of what it means to be a hero. Uh, And I would differentiate between heroes and saviors. You know, we see these images of superheroes on the screen who can do everything. And we, we sort of aspire to being that savior, which is very different from being the hero. The traditional definition of a, of a hero 
is someone who is acts courageously or acts bravely. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to be a, a compassionate leader. The conversations that one needs to have, the ability to sense the other person and be able to get into their, their feelings reveals all the vulnerabilities in ourself, which requires a whole lot of courage. So I think that compassionate leaderships are heroes without what some people would think of as that illusion of control, because I don't think we should kid ourselves into thinking that we are fully in control of things. And again, uh, we just have to look out at the pandemic today to recognize what little control we do have. And realizing that we really aren't in control makes makes it a whole lot easier to practice humility, which is it, I, I don't use easier and humility in the same sentence when it comes to me because it is it is it is very challenging. But that's part of the bravery of a compassionate leader is the bravery to recognize how humble we really must be when we look at ourselves in a universal context. So it's not a hero in the sense of being a rescuer, but it definitely is in the sense of needing courage. And I'd agree with that. Now, the tech industry is brought into compassionate leadership, for example, Google with Project Aristotle. And in the UK, the NHS is a compassionate leadership initiative led by NHS Improvement and the King's Fund. Many manufacturers have taken to it, as my podcast series illustrates. However, a while ago, I wrote a blog entitled, You're the Worst Colleague We Have, which was based on the abusive treatment a friend of mine received from a manager in a supermarket multinational. Do you think compassionate leadership can be effective in any industry? Because it seems to me that some industries have a way to go. Oh, we couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> and I don't think any industry is immune, even tech, where, you know, I spent decades of my work life. I see pockets, again, of beautiful work happening in many organizations, again, around the world. And this this value of, of wanting to treat people with human kindness is really coming forth, especially in this moment. On the other hand, there is this blanket amnesia to what is emerging as really important in the world as it currently is in this moment. So many people fall back into these old ways of being that either they were trained for or grew up with or were the ways that people succeeded in the world before now. Even, we see this even with young people because there is this halo. And, and we all talk about millennials having a different way of being in the world because they're more aligned with their values and, and they want to bring those values into their organizations or be in organizations where those values are felt and seen and heard and respected. But clearly there is you know, I'd say we're at the 0.1% <laughs> of penetration. If I had to put a number on it, that's not a real number. That's not a, a validated number. That is my intuitive feeling about how little has really been uh, shifted in our global consciousness and how far we have to go to bring this forward across the board. And it works everywhere. We all want to be treated with kindness and respect. What do you see as the barriers to a more compassionate style of leadership then? I think the, the, the first barrier is our lizard brain. 
We, in times of, of enhanced uh, stress, immediately revert to our fight, flight, or freeze mode. And that just narrows our vision down and it puts ourselves in the center. And we don't think about others. We think only about protecting ourselves. And that certainly served us as a species when the threats were tigers that wanted to eat us or poisonous snakes or the like. But we live in an evolved world and we really have the capacity and the freedom to be thinking from a deeper part of our brain. So this is why mindfulness is really an important part of, of all compassion practices, because the first thing we do have to do is calm that part of our brain that is, that is always going on and always looking out for danger. One very uh, concrete way that manifests itself, and it's, it's another barrier to compassionate leadership, is unconscious bias. We all have our unconscious biases. And these are also deeply ingrained in the base of our brain. Uh, when people who didn't look like us came to our village, came to the village of, of our ancestors tens of thousands of years ago, they weren't coming to sing Kumbaya around the campfire. They were coming <laughs> to do harm. And so when we see people who are not like us, we simply feel something in the base of our brain of doubt or fear or lack of safety. And it's very important that we work to, one, recognize those unconscious biases, and two, move beyond them so that we really can be living in a more inclusive and more appropriately responsive world. And then finally, especially in the, in the realm of compassionate leadership, one of the biggest barriers to, uh, to compassionate leadership is power. The emotional intelligence skills that actually lead people to get to power are eroded by power. Dr. Keltner outlined this so well in his, his book, The Power Paradox. When we get into positions of leadership, people's attitudes towards us change. They stop t telling us bad news. They start, they, they start telling us more and more how smart we are. And if we believe our own press releases, then all of a sudden our empathy skills start to atrophy. So power itself is a barrier to compassion, but there's no reason why people in power can't practice compassion and maintain the compassion muscles. Completely. When I was a leader myself, I found the very hardest thing was to get accurate and honest feedback on your performance. I've got great admiration for leaders, say, like uh, Tracy Allen at Derbyshire Community Health Services, who's been chief exec of a 4,000-strong organisation for nine years and has still managed to hold it together. I think, you know, that's quite an achievement. Is there a person or persons that's inspired you along your journey? I'll start. I am reflecting back to um, my grandparents actually, because I was thinking of external people. And, and then I, I came to really reflect on, and especially, again, at this time when we're all starting to face these hardships of quarantine and global crisis, something that most of us have really never experienced in our lives. And um, both on my mother and my father's side, you know, my father's family immigrated before the turn of the 19th century from Russia to 
the States. And my mother's family had a, a harrowing journey of escape and hiding and survival, fleeing Europe after World War II, during World War II. And I see the effects of that in terms of behaviors and patterns and post-traumatic stress. And it's remarkable to me that given those incredibly harsh conditions, the courage, the bravery, the fortitude, the resilience that was really required to set off on those journeys, to make those journeys, to complete those journeys when not everybody made it. And that's for sure. So to keep moving forward in the face of adversity really warms me because I certainly I wouldn't be here, but that's a shared story for so many people whose ancestors really broke so many barriers to thrive and to be present and to contribute in some way to the, the next generation. I guess since Laura chose a um, chose someone from the, the more contemplative side of the aisle I'll I'll choose a scientific a scientific mentor and that's uh, that's Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin who has executed on his scientific research for decades in such a humane way and has done it in such a fully integrated way it takes a, a real scientist to be able to connect the data to our humanity. And that's what we're trying to do here. And so I guess I would I would say Richie Davidson is is the inspiration. Yeah, the body of his work is remarkable. What does your self-care regime look like? So my uh, my principal meditation teacher, Cynthia Bourgeau, always focuses on telling us we must take care to always be practicing our mind, our heart, and our body. So I try uh, once a day at least to, uh, to have some body movement. And for me, that's either running or yoga. I try to exercise my mind through, through reading and reflection. And I'm also a meditator and try to meditate uh, once a day as well. And when I do those, the self-care just flows naturally. Sometimes we get to meditate together, which is really nice. Sometimes we meditate apart. And, and both, of course, have their benefits. And I love being in community. So sometimes I meditate with larger groups of people. I mentioned earlier that yoga was part of my journey. So I have a daily asana practice that constitutes movement. But I also feel so strongly that what nourishes me is to be in nature. And fortunately, we live in a part of the world where we are right by the great ocean where we have trees and hills and grass and trails and woods. And, you know, I am endlessly in awe of nature. And that is probably, I think more than anything, a foundational practice for me. And lastly, I, I do try to journal and to uh, bring awareness on a more mental level to, to what's swirling inside and to look at that and go, what? <laughs> and uh, work with the thoughts and the feelings, the intentions and the vision that I uh, aspire to bring forward. So lots of self-care and I prioritize it like nobody's business. It does not fall off the chart. 
Now, at this stage in the podcast, I normally ask my guests if there's a book, podcast or video you'd recommend to aspiring leaders. But as you're a resource hub, I'd imagine that there's far more than just one. Would you like to uh, suggest a few? One of my favorite teachers and authors and really a, a guiding light on this journey has been Sharon Salzberg. So I love her book. I love all her books, but uh, I especially love her, it might be her most recent book, Real Love, which is actually a few years old now, but it's such a beautiful encapsulation of love for the self and love for people in your field of relationships and love for all beings everywhere. And it's so powerful. It's full of beautiful practices and rituals and wisdom it's it's short but very deep sharon salzberg yeah and i assume chris that uh, that your book uh, compassionate leadership creating places of belonging is is disqualified from this list so <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> but uh, i wish it weren't disqualified so that that i could uh, mention it but i early on was influenced by this is an oldie but a goodie but jim collins from good to great and I think that his concept of a level five leader, which he describes as being a combination of very, very strong professional will combined with uh, very deep personal humility, captures a good bit of what, what it takes to be a, a, a compassionate leader. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if I were, were going to just pull out, pull out one, that's, that's the one I, I would mention. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good insight, actually, I think, Evan. You know, compassionate leadership isn't new. It might not have had that title at the time, but uh, I'm a big fan of Jim Collins as well. So what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Um, I would say to be awake, <laughs> to pay attention, to be content with what is, and to be present to the moment that you're in and to be grateful for it, because that's basically all we got. I didn't know that then. I may not know it all the time now, but, you know, just being here. I think I would, I would tell myself to question everything. I had a pretty strong worldview at 20, and I, I thought I knew it all. And most of what I thought I knew uh, uh, has turned out not to be right. I wish I had, had been questioning earlier and earlier and earlier because uh, the more assumptions I let go of and challenges I placed, the deeper my, my knowledge has, has become. I would say just, just question everything. Yeah, curiosity is an underrated attribute, isn't it, for sure? Mm. So as we're... As we're Coming to a close now, you said we're about at 0.1% at the moment with compassionate leaders. <laughs> hope that's a slight underestimate. But are you optimistic for the future of compassionate leadership and compassion in general? Oh, yes. I mean, um, this moment when we are all facing this common global hardship has I see so much awakening, so much kindness pouring forth from people. I was in New York during 9-11, uh, right there. And, you know, this feeling of, 
banding together and community and service really exploded. And unfortunately, it also contracted rather quickly. And my deepest hope is that this time, as we're faced with something so much larger and so such a wake-up call to everybody, that this will really shake us out of our sleep and get us going. And I do feel so hopeful because we do see so much good starting to focus and concentrate and move these ideals forward and help everybody. This is not hard. This is not rocket science. You know, these are basic human values and making these front and center for people, no matter where they are. There's so much of this blending, you know, everybody getting on video chat and connecting virtually all of the sudden, people's pets are in the frame and people's children are in the frame. And it's forcing this blending of personal and organizational life that really is at the heart of compassionate leadership because you have to bring your whole self forward. And showing up in our whole humanity is what this crisis has really uh, sort of jolted us into by default. So here we are. There's no going back. And I, I, I would agree with all of that. I think that we as a species want to survive. And the only way we're going to do it is by recognizing our interconnectedness and dealing with each other compassionately. It is the only choice. And um, there is an enormous uh, response as we get out there and talk about this. Many, many people recognize this. And we believe that by working through leaders, we will be working through the change agents that will be making policies that impact us. And whether it is to economic disruptions that are caused by a pandemic or to the threat of climate change or to the threat that we have of possible armed conflict between nuclear armed countries. All of these are things that can be overcome by understanding consciously what our condition is and then responding in a way that recognizes that every choice mm -hmm. I make affects everyone else and every choice they make affects me. Yeah. And then we can start understanding each other. Yeah, maybe the other payoff from this current crisis is recognizing how easy things are to pass on. And compassion is one of those things, isn't it? Ah, yes. You know, so it's a <laughs> passes it on to his board of directors, soon they're passing it on to their managers and the managers are passing it on to their frontline staff and the frontline staff are passing it on to the customers and all everyone experiences that compassion. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it gets built into society. So Evan and Laura, thanks ever so much for being with us today. I wish you all the best with your endeavours at the Centre for Compassionate Leadership. And um, I hope we can stay in touch in the future. Thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflasconsulting.com. You can find Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. And this episode was recorded by Squadcast in Sheffield and New York. And the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. 